The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one little bit of American writing using the Library of America as my as the text that I examine. And in this episode, I will be continuing my look at Herman Melville's novel of life in the U.S. Navy in the middle of the 19th century called A White Jacket or, man, or Life in a Man of War. So we looked at the first 100 pages of, of White Jacket in the last episode. And so that covered chapters 1 through 24. There's not that much to recap or to say about, about that first part of, of White Jacket. It's a novel that very much feels like a, a nonfiction account, a memoir almost of life on the ship. In many ways, it probably is drawn mostly from Melville's own experiences. He also spent a year on a man of war after his time as a whaler on the Pacific. Uh, there might be lightly fictionalized moments from here and there, but by and large, it feels like it's something true to life in most cases. A lot of the first part of the novel centers on the power dynamics and the, the structure and the hierarchies on the ship. And there's a lot of detail we were given by Melville about, about um kind of how the crew works together, how the captains are kind of superfluous. So there's kind of a, a subtle critique about the whole nature of hierarchy in these ships. One of his most brutal da damnations of the hierarchy system was when he revealed that several men died during a routine training exercise, which Melville thinks did more to aggrandize the ego of the officers than actually improve uh, preparedness of, of the ship. So... Basically, the whole plot of the novel just involves him going from the Pacific back home uh, via Cape Horn. And that's where we pick up in Chapter 25 is the ship undergoing this very treacherous voyage from the Pacific to the Atlantic through the, the very dangerous straits near Cape Horn. Now, I don't know the, like the meteorology behind this, but it must have something to do with the weather patterns that emerge in that with the land, the way it's structured, and the fact that there's that much water between there. I'm not sure why this happens, but apparently Cape Horn is one of the most dangerous places to pass through in all of, of the world for sailing ships. It's one reason ships don't go there anymore. They use the Panama Canal. So this is what happens in the chapters really 25 and 26, and, and a few more after that, is they're trying to get around Cape Horn, and they're just facing this with, with bravery, with their skill, uh, but with uncertainty about their future, if they even make it, ships get, got lost here all the time. And well, so we're given a fairly in-depth description of what the sailors faced off Cape Horn. And Melville comes to the conclusion after these experiences that really Cape Horn, the experiences he faced off Cape Horn, the experiences all the sailors faced off that really comes off as a metaphor for life. And one thing we need to I think we're, we, the conclusion we come to when we read this novel is that Melville, although he's talking about a man of war and it seems to be a very focused narrative and it's a very journalistic and expose kind of account, he does want to go a little bit farther with it and he wants to see the man of war as a, as a metaphor for, 
for just life in general in, in 19th century capitalist America or the world. In the same way how in Redburn we got this kind of uh, snapshot of, of the movement of labor and commodities and pe you know, people and goods and services across the Atlantic through the eyes of a, of a young sailor. So we're getting it's it's these novels are metaphors for bigger pictures. That's certainly the case for with Moby Dick. Um, but in these more I guess realistic accounts, these accounts that are drawn more from life, like Redburn and White Jacket, he's doing the same sort of thing. So there's an interesting passage. It comes at the end of of chapter 26, and here's what Melville writes. Quote, Thus, all the fine weather we encountered at the first weighing anchor on the pleasant Spanish coast was but a prelude to this one terrific night, more especially that treacherous calm immediately preceding it. But how could we reach our long-promised homes without encountering Cape Horn? By what possibility avoid it? And though some ships had weathered it without these perils, yet by far the greatest part must encounter them. Lucky it is that it comes about midway in the homebound voyage passage, so that the sailors have time to prepare for it and time to recover from it after it is astern. But, sailor or landsman, there is some sort of Cape Horn for all. Boys, beware of it. Prepare for it in time. Graybeards, thank God it's past. And ye lucky livers, for whom some rare fatality, your Cape Horn are placid as Lake Lemans. Flatter yourself that good luck is judgment and discretion. For all the yolks in your eggs, you may have foundered and gone down had the spirit of the Cape said the word. It's a nice reflection, I think, on fate and the fact that we all have trouble in our life and that random stuff happens to us and, you know, and, and, and we can't really count on, on safety in this, in this life of ours. Now, during the, the passage around Cape Horn, Melville is able to make commentary on the kind of the leadership hierarchy when he shows Mad Jack um, giving orders. And he shows that when there is now Mad Jack is a lieutenant on on the ship, and so he's he's not outside of the the hierarchy, but he's still not not the highest up. But at one point he like takes control, and in, he was established before as as a true jet, as a true tar, someone who really does know sailing and got some respect from the crew because of that. And he during this crisis, it's like bad weather and just the stormy seas, he does things regardless of what the officers say, but he openly contramands the orders of, of a superior officer. And this is Melville's way of showing the futility of the leadership core on the ship, that really the true leadership comes from the bottom up. It comes through experience and knowledge and respect from the sailors that the captains and the commodores and these people just strut around on the decks, but don't really provide too much to the crew itself. And there's a really interesting uh, story here just about the lack of a chain of command the, the lack of strength in the officers of course he goes on a whole rant about the lack of courage and heroism among the american naval officer corps and he ends with a, a specific poly, policy position actually which is we should let officers be drawn not from like the upper classes or from the people who maybe graduate from the school but rather from actually the upward mobility of the sailors and and soldiers who serve in it and i think that's um you know and to the degree that's that's what happens during the civil war as i remember like the confederates they lost partially because they had kind of an aristocratic officer corps if, if you know the plantation class became the officer corps and they didn't have that same upper mobility the union army did and you know lincoln famously fired a lot of generals for failure until he found the right ones and these were people drawn 
drawn from the lower ranks. And there's a lot of examples of people who went up into the officer corps basically from fairly humble beginnings because they showed ability or heroism or or something like that. So Melville's making that argument in, in White Jacket for just get, doing away with uh, much of the leadership on these ships and replacing them with kind of homegrown uh, authorities. Of people who, who get there now just to experience and, and struggle. So Melville's not quite done with Cape Horn yet. Chapter 28 called Edging Away kind of shows the aftermath of their struggles over Cape Horn. This is a little bit of a reprise where, where Melville's able to go back to kind of the, the slices of life stories that make up this novel. And we meet Wulu, a Pacific Islander, a servant of the Commodore. So um, this this is an interesting character. Maybe we want to compare him to, to Quiquake, a, a, a Polynesian we're going to meet in... Or Tashitigo, right? Tash oh, no, Kwikwe is the Polynesian. Tashitigo is the Indian. So we'll, we'll meet them in the next novel when we look at Moby Dick. But there's just a little side story here about this um, kind of the, the good characteristics of this Polynesian servant that, had, that, that he had aboard. And, and we appreciate Melville for, for remembering these, these perhaps normally marginalized figures in, in maritime history. And then with Cape Horn out of the way, Melville just goes back to talking about different aspects of life on the ship. And I'm not going to bore you, I think, with all that's here. It's very rich. It's, it's very detailed. And you're kind of overwhelmed, actually, a little bit by, by how much Melville has to say about this. I can imagine that people in the 19th century got a lot of pleasure reading these kind of stories. You know, imagining they are on this naval vessel. You know, and these kinds of things still sell, right? Military history is still very popular. So there's a lot here. I, I do know Melville has greater literary ambitions than maybe a lot of his readers, you know, what the, than what they got out of this novel. But still, I, I think sometimes it feels like it, it drags on a little bit with all these different, like, journalistic side stories about this or that. So we get a little bit about the night watches. We get uh, a story about a, a sailor and his... He's losing his Dunkerfish dish, this meal he, he had prepared. But it's really in chapter 33 that things start to take off, and we, we get to one of the core themes of the book, and, the, and we get to the, the, the place where this book has its greatest historical significance, and that is in Melville's condemnation of flogging. And he goes on for several chapters talking about flogging, its evil effects on sailors, and its... I, th I think it's four chapters he covers, and they're all fairly long chapters, where he goes into every aspect of flogging. He goes into how, what it affects on the sailors, what's its effect on the crew and the ship, what's its effect on the, what's its effect on, or what's an alternative to, to flogging he talks about. So he goes into a whole lot of, of detail on these things. So the, the first of these chapters on, on flogging is just called a flogging, and this relates the events that our character White Jacket witnesses, in which uh, a sailor is punished. It seems to be a very regular event. It happens quite commonly. It almost seems it's very arbitrary, and it's also something that the entire crew has to witness. So it's not just the violence against the individual sailor who's being punished, or in this case, I think it's a group of sailors. It's, it's a violence against the whole crew, and it's, it's an attack on their whole uh, you know, feeling of security on the ship. And it does seem to have a very profound psychological impact on, on the sailors, 
And of course, this is at a time in which abolitionists were writing about the brutality and the violence of slavery in the South. And this was part of the kind of the reform era where these questions were being asked about violence in the society in various ways, whether it was slavery or this. And, you know, it's it wouldn't have been missed by readers that that sailors were being treated essentially like like slaves here. At least in the way that the violence was arbitrary, and the key part of Melville's critique of flogging is that there's really no judicial oversight. There's no courts. It, it, it's not like there's a jury trial at first. It's just if the captain says this punishment must be done, it it will be done. There's really no recourse that the sailors have, and this is actually true also for wages when they garnish wages. Uh, they could, I guess, sue captains, but a lot of sailors didn't have the financial resources or even the know-how or the knowledge to actually pursue those. So um, there, I did look at some court cases years and years ago about on wages, in which some sailors did, I guess, protest and, and, and sue their captains for, for lost wages. But my guess is that there's a lot more skimming off the top than what those, those few handful of cases show. The next chapter on this is on the evil effects of flogging. And here he focuses on a bunch of, of values, essentially, about how this dishonors sailors, how it, it seems to corrupt the powerful, how it, it creates this kind of, it, it ruins the dignity of, of the men. So Melville writes at the end of this chapter, quote, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman? asked the intrepid apostle, well knowing as a Roman citizen that it was not. And now, 1,800 years after that, it's lawful for you, my countrymen, to scourge a man that is an American, to scourge him around the world in your frigates, end quote. Now, of course, there is kind of a, a bit of white privilege implied here in that, you know, these people shouldn't be treated as arbitrarily as slaves, right? Especially, you know, the, the language here of citizenship. And, and not long after this book was written, the Supreme Court in the United States would argue that black people are, are, are clearly not citizens, even free blacks aren't citizens. Uh, and slaves and uh, had no rights in in American courts, so he is establishing a you know that sailors here are being treated basically like like slaves in the arbitrary nature of the punishment. And yeah, there is a kind of a little bit of of critique we could give here about the white privilege that that Melville is pursuing here, but um, Melville's own views on slavery were not certainly favorable. It's not something he really wrote about very much, but he, he certainly didn't seem to be a supporter of, of that system. I, I, I can't really say more about that. I, I should probably look it up. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Chapter 35 is called Flogging Not Lawful, and here he, he basically gets into the actual legal argument that, that captains often don't have the right to do this, that the people who do it is often done illegally, it's not done with the proper oversight, and that just Congress has passed laws to regulate the use of flogging, but these laws are not followed on, on the ship. And then in chapter 36, he argues that flogging is not necessary, specifically saying that there are better ways to discipline sailors. He even says taking away their grog would probably do more to get them to, to behave than, than the risk of flogging. And he gives examples, historical and contemporary, of ships that didn't use flogging, of ships that that had alternative forms of punishment and he pulls these out and he comes to the conclusion here that there's really no reason for for flogging to to continue in american ships and in fact this book did lead to lead to policy changes that that did um, change the frequency of, of flogging on american 
naval ships. So the next part of the novel deals basically, and, and this will, I think, cover most of the period uh, until the midpoint of the novel when I'll stop this episode. It, it explores the, the ship, the, the Never Sink, when it crosses uh, Cape Hood and eventually it goes to Rio de Janeiro where it stops in, in, the, in the port. And then this gives Melville time to talk about what life is like in, in the port for these these. Uh, sailors. We, we got a bit of this with Redburn, with a merchant ship. It's a very different uh, thing with with these these sailors. Uh, first, there's much many more of them. It's, it's a much bigger operation. It's of course there's military discipline involved in this. So it's a slightly different experience when these sailors went to went to port. He talks about uh, he actually has one little side thing he talks about first, which is the the stored port used for the private use of, of the officers and the sailors find it at one point and they refuse the use of it. And this just kind of reinforces the idea that there is an inequality on the ship and kind of an arbitrary inequality. Um, in this case, it's in this kind of port that's that's preserved only for the officer's use. Um, now, we get a little bit here also about the, the role of the chapel and the role of religion. Uh, basically, the, the major point we get about religion is that on Sunday, there there's no Sundays off when they're in water, right? Uh, on page 510 of the Library of America version, he says, No Sundays off Sundays indeed. No Sunday on shipboard. You may as well say there should be no Sunday in churches. For it's not a ship modeled after, so it's not a ship modeled after a church. Has it not three spries, three steeples? Yea, and on the gun deck, a bell and a belfry. And does not that bell merrily peal every Sunday morning to summon the crew to devotions? Um, but there are ch sort of church services or a chaplain on the ship that performs these religious services. So talk after talking about this, the frigate goes to the harbor at Rio de Janeiro. And Melville, as we learned with Redburn, that, that this is a real problem, that what to do with sailors on, at port. How do you maintain discipline? You pay them usually some of their money so they can live you know, in port. How do you make sure they come back? These are all big problems for for the ships. And he goes on for many, many chapters about, about life in the port. So it's, it's some good stuff here. Um, there's a little bit here on unnecessary ceremony. That's, that's the name of one chapter. And Melville gets to poke fun at the silliness of the, of the pomp of these ceremonies. And, and that goes back to kind of the pompacity of people like the Commodore and the captains who kind of walk around all puffed up thinking they're the greatest thing, captains of these ships. But in fact, they're just kind of embarrassing themselves. They don't really you know, show off any great skill or ability. Um, one way sailors, though, passed the time in the port was through the use of a library. Um, it's very difficult to read at sea, according to Melville, but it's nevertheless, popular fiction is a very important um, you know, companion, I guess, during the, these, these voyages. But it's not just uh, popular fiction. There's philosophy is there, relig you know, theology is there, and some, some hardcore books. I mean, the kind of books that people don't, don't pick up lately are described here as being on ship libraries or being, being available to sailors in, in port. And it seems fairly diverse, but the heart of it is popular fiction. That's what most people seem to want. Killing time in, in harbor is, is a bigger problem. In general, though, not everyone likes to read. So one thing that people do is they do a lot. They, they spend a lot of time 
with leisure activities, one of these is tattooing. They get tattoos because that's a long process and they have the time when they're important anyways to do it. So tattooing is one and he goes into the process of tattooing. He talks about games they might play and stories they, they tell. But one other way that sailors in port here spent their, 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 their free time was with smuggling. And what's being smuggled is, is grog. And so idleness leads to smuggling as part of the argument that Melville makes here. This desire for grog is very intense. And, and this is why Melville thought that just taking away grog could be a better deterrent to, to bad behavior on the ship than, than flogging, because it seems it's the center of the sailor's life and thought. And this desire for grog has leads to a lot of grog smuggling on the ship. And that's just something when you have these 500 men in the port, not much to do, not much work to be done. Uh, waiting sometimes for weeks and weeks, you know, you're going to lead to, you know, people are going to fill their time, I guess. And part of that is leads to a lot of grog smuggling. But even in this issue, Melville very brilliantly is able to tie it back into issues of corruption and inequality and unfairness on the ship. And he gives a story. The chapter is chapter 44. It's called The Knave and a Man of War. And it's really about that how an officer is able to use his status as an officer to aid in the smuggling and and the implications many officers do this and while younger like lower ranking sailors will be you know just the regular rank and file will be punished for using for smuggling grog or or using too much of whatever it's the officers who get away with it and they use it they they use a lot of it so it's almost like in a prison maybe where the guards are smuggling in drugs, but, you know, they might pass it off to the prisoners as the real culprits in that. Um, so that pretty much takes us to the halfway point of, of White Jacket. I guess I kind of zipped through it pretty quickly this time, but, but I think that's fine. Um, yeah, we're constantly reminded in this section about power and hierarchy, kind of in the, as we did in the first section, too. Here, it's, it's really, in this section, the most central moment is in the discussion of, of flogging but at a lot of other points he, he brings up inequities and injustices on the ship for instance uh, in chapter 46 when he talks he has a chapter called the commodore on the poop uh, and this is this image I often get when i read this book is is the commodore walking around in a suit with the you know the fancy buttons and everything in, in his uniform without anything to do right his his job is basically useless as Millville established before, but he fills up his time with pomp and ceremony and showing off and ordering people around. So here's what Melville writes. Quote, there's nothing upon which the Commodore of a squadron more prides himself than upon the celerity with which his men can handle the sails and go through with the evolutions pertaining thereto. This is especially manifest in harbor when other ships of his squadron are near and perhaps the armed ships of rival nations. Upon these occasions, surrounded by his post-captains, satraps, each of which has a, is in his own floating island as king, the commodore domineers over all, emperor of the whole Oaken archipelago, yea, magisterial and magnificent, as the sultan of the island of Sulu. But even as so potent an emperor and Caesar to boot as the great don of Germany, Charles V, was used to divert himself by his dotage by watching the gyrations of the springs and cogs of the low row of clocks, even so does an elderly Commodore while away in his leisure and harbor by what is called exercising guns and also exercising yards and sails, causing the various spars of his ship under his command to be braced, 
toppled and cockbilled in concert, while the Commodore himself sits, something like King Conte, on an arm chest on the poop of his flagship. By far more regal than any descendant of Charlemagne, more haughty than any Mongol of the East, and almost mysterious and voiceless in his authority as the great spirit of the five nations, the Commodore deigns not to verbalize his commands. They are imparted by single signal. And that's, I think that, that gets to the, the heart of the, our main argument in Melville is just uh, the thickness of unnecessary pomp, unnecessary hierarchy, and useless hierarchy. And that the real power, the real strength of any institution comes from the, the working people who, who construct it. And everything else is just um, froth. Um, so that does it, I think, for the second part of my review of White Jacket. I will have two more coming up. So the next part will look at chapters 48 to, to 68, if you're reading along. So 20 chapters for, for next time. Um, where we're going to get more of the same. It, it's a really not novel without much of a plot. It's just a novel that kind of gives us different slices of life on board, board a man of war. It is what novel claims to be in the title. It's, it's about life on a man of war. But if there's anything I missed or anything you think is interesting that when you read White Jacket, please let me know. Please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment below. Thanks as always for listening and I will see you next time with part three of my thoughts on Herman Melville's White Jacket. At last there came a Yankee skipper away you rolling river He winked his eye and he dipped his flipper